you want to ditch feature dumping, build trust and earn the opportunity to become your prospect's trusted guide, then say hello to the Influential Communicator newsletter. Now, listen, my friend, my intention is clear because with one actionable weekly email keyword actionable my goal is to transform you into a captivating storyteller communicator and presenter so if this is a bit of you then head on down to www.theinfluentialcommunicator.com to register now and by the way if you do sign up know that you'll also receive my free guide on how to craft a punchy and high converting elevator story I'll see you on the other side. Welcome to the Influential Communicator Podcast, where my mission is to help B2B salespeople sell more by becoming authentic storytellers and impactful communicators without suppressing who they truly are or their values. I'm your host, Ravi Rajani, and without further wait, let's get into it. Today, I'm about to talk to a dude that has helped his clients negotiate over $100 million in compensation increases. And today, I'm about to talk to a man that has helped over 2,500 executives land their next role. And today, I'm about to talk to a dude that is a new dad, just like me, is winging it every single day, people. And if he tells you anything different, don't believe him, all right? Don't believe him. And that man is Jacob Warwick, who's the founder of Core Connect and Think Warwick, which are both dedicated to helping executives master negotiation and have a fulfilling career. And today, I wanted to bring him onto the show to specifically teach us how to negotiate a pay rise with bulletproof confidence. Dude, welcome to the show, man. What's good? You know, lots are good. Being a dad is good. It's uh, it's given me uh, new clarity on what I value in life. And I think it backs up what I do for a career and learning that sometimes negotiation is not all about money, but it's about negotiating the type of life that you want and the boundaries that you need to have a more fulfilling life as well. So Lots of lessons being learned at a rapid fire pace, as, as you know, as you're a little bit ahead of me on that dad journey. Dude, speaking of dad journey, what's one thing that you found surprisingly easier than you thought? Wow, surprisingly easier. So a couple of things. My son has slept through the night since he was mm-hmm. two weeks old. And oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that was... That's surprisingly easier. I didn't say I slept through the night. <laughs> now I I go, I have to get up and go, are you still alive? Why aren't you crying? Everyone told me you'd be crying. Diapers are easier. I've never been grossed out by a diaper yet. There's still milk diapers. So from what I hear, they get bad later down the line. So I haven't been grossed out by a diaper. I actually enjoy enjoy changing diapers. I get my son really excited because I just say, is it time for a fresh butt? Is it time for a fresh butt? And I like my my little dad voice picks up. This is, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a treat for your listeners. And uh, he gets really excited to get changed. And man, I don't know. Like, I, I find myself knocking on wood when talking to other parents because they're like, oh, just wait. Oh, just wait. Hell will come your way. It's in, but so far, every day has been better and better. So I'll just keep on that positive train and try not to listen to other parents that have been uh, emotionally scarred from whatever their little hellion children are doing to them <laughs> dude can i tell you what i hate jacob can i tell you what i hate 
Yes, please. When you're sitting down with a friend and they go, oh, you you just wait, man. Wait, wait till they start teething and then you... I'm like, listen, dude, let me experience the hell. Maybe it's not going to be hell. Maybe it was hell for you, but that doesn't mean to be my story, man. That does not need to be my story. You know, and sometimes I find that people talk about their spouses that way too. Oh, just wait. When you're together <laughs> five years, it'll change. How about 10, 10 years, it'll change. It'll all go downhill from there, whatever. Honestly, my spouse is my best friend. has been my best friend the entire time. Ideally, I will face the things. You know, one other thing too, Ralph, you probably have a pretty stellar track record of doing the right thing when faced with hard times, right? I mean, you are where you are in your career, whatever that may be. And sometimes I say, say this with some of my clients too. They're usually half million, million dollar plus earners. Like generally speaking, when faced with adversity, you come out on top. So when faced with, oh my gosh, that diaper is a complete blowout, just wait. Oh no, my son is teething and it's starting to hurt. Like I'll make good decisions, right? I'll understand, oh, maybe I should go to bed a little bit earlier. Or maybe I should change the diet a little bit. Maybe I should be healthy. Maybe I should go for a run, take care of my mental health some. Generally speaking, when things get hard, folks like you and I, maybe some of the astute listeners on the call, I always like to you know, blow a little smoke for the listeners. You generally make the right decision. So you should kind of enter that fearlessly, right? blow a little smoke for the listeners okay. i say that from the, the readers of my blog i said well obviously i'm not talking about any of the readers on the blog you're way smarter than that so. <laughs> i mean there's the californian in you coming out there right you know blowing oh smoke. no don't call that out yeah well, i have to say it, man we got, we got to give the people what they want they want to know the truth where you're actually from you know they want to know yeah i'm uh, from california about 30 mm -hmm. years in the golden state yeah, I used to apologize for it. And now I kind of don't want to apologize for it. And plus, everyone kind of lives there at some point in their life or has at least been there. So I don't have any shame anymore. I'm shameless. I think people are jealous, man, like me, because when I think of California, I think of well, actually, I probably just think of Hollywood movies and <laughs> like the beautiful houses, the sun, 364 days a year. I mean, it is beautiful on paper, but everyone's got their own experiences when they are living their version of their dream. And speaking of the dream, brother, when I was doing some research on you, and it sounds creepy, but I'm going to run with it. When I was doing my research on you, you've had a very fruitful career and entrepreneurial journey. There's a ton of information that you've put out into the world through articles on entrepreneur.com, Forbes, et cetera, et cetera. And there's also been a ton of stuff written about you. And it got me thinking, man, what is one thing that not many people know about Jacob, which will give us a better understanding of the human he is today? Goodness. I am hotly known for being an open book and especially some recent blog articles. So I can't really surprise you with weird childhood traumas and growing up and not going to college, kind of the traditional rags to riches type story. So I won't bore you with that. I guess I really don't like rules. That's, that's something that I think is, uh, I think you could maybe read between the lines if you see the, some of the stuff, but um, the thing that I, and, I, and one of the reasons that I'm driven to this type of work is that your career is kind of guided by a set of rules. Your, your life is often set by a set of rules that somebody else created for you or that society places on you in some way or the media is saying, get the hot new kicks or get the whatever it is, you know, and you constantly are kind of living under a little bit of someone else's influence. And whenever I catch myself 
being influenced by something, I really get frustrated at my inability to read through bullshit. And it kind of frustrates me. So when it comes to I'll loop us back to negotiation a bit, they say, you know, you know, pay your dues, do this and then do that. And then, you know, get promoted into this and then do your manager work, then your director work, then your VP work. You know, there's a logical step, go to school, get your grades, do this, do that. And it's all bullshit. There's folks that, you know, and they, they always, it's, it's either, you mentioned you're, you're an entrepreneur, right? So the perception that people have is you're either in your grandma's basement coding or you're Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk and there is no in-between, right? So when you hear someone drop out of college, you're either a total failure on drugs in the street or you're some on the spectrum savant who's leading billion dollar companies or something. So it's like, there's no in-between. And what I think is that a lot of the world runs in the gray area. But we often live by that black and white rule book that we place on ourselves or that society does. So at the end of the day, I just want to break down stereotypes and break down rules whenever possible and just try to get to the real meat of whatever it is that an individual needs and kind of throw all the rest of the crap out. What do you think individuals think they need in today's world, which is a lie that they're secretly telling themselves? that they need a bigger house, a better car, their kids need to go to a certain school, they need to have certain proclivities for their lifestyle. And then they keep, there's just a little bit of scope creep that happens in your own life that you start to become accustomed to. It's the, uh, <laughs> you know, they get frustrated when Warren Buffett says like, you know, some total rich billionaires like, oh, don't drink coffee every day because that that extra money will add up and you'll be broke. And you're like, what the hell does this guy know? I make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year if I want to have my latte from Starbucks every single day. I'm have my damn latte from Starbucks. Right. And I don't think it's the damn latte that's the problem. It's that there's a little bit of creep that happens in our quality of life that, you know, got to have the new phone every time it comes out got to have the new the phone comes with the case comes with the insurance comes with the new car comes with the new this 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 and these things start to stack and i think that's all fun and games when your career is always up and to the right and your career is consistently getting better but what often happens is that people will build their they'll climb the ladder on the wrong building so to speak so suddenly they're chief revenue officer for another startup and they're grinding and grinding and grinding to make money because they have to at this point because they've scope crept their lifestyle so much. Or their ego is caught up to a degree that like everyone knows me as a chief executive. So that's therefore what I must be. And sometimes they'll take jobs or work for companies that don't treat them so well. But they don't have much of a choice. They don't have a lot of runway. They don't have, you know, sometimes their ego is so tied into it that they need to make it a success because everything they ever do is a success. So there's a lot of things that I think we do unnecessarily that drive us to make bad decisions and push us into positions of unhappiness. And what I found through a lot of executive coaching is that most people don't realize it until their late 40s or early 50s. And then they feel that there's a sunk cost in their life and there's nothing left worth living. And then they just kind of go down a rabbit hole and start spiraling. So I've seen a lot of kind of wild stuff happen from there. Sorry, that was that was a deep cut. I could see your face. You're like, damn. Didn't want to go that way today. <laughs> no, I did. I'm glad you went that way because I think the sunk cost fallacy is real, man. And I used to work in the world of investment banking on the trading floor. And I tell you what, <laughs> there were a lot of people stuck in the wealth trap. You know, they had mortgages, kids on different tuition fees for private schools and all of these obligations coming out of God knows what. But 
they hated what they did, man. And you could see it in their faces. It was just sucking the life out of them. But I digress. You mentioned a word which caught my attention. You said the word runway. Before we get into this negotiation piece, in today's world, how much runway do you think somebody needs in life? Is it one year worth of their salary? Is it six months? Is it three months? Like, What's your take on this? I'm the wrong person to ask for this because I've usually had negative runway my entire life. And <laughs> what's interesting is I've started a business $30,000, in debt with nothing to my name. I've been homeless before. I've lived off of little. I've worked graveyards in retail and like worked to the bone. So I guess the, the piece that not a lot of people understand about me, I guess, I've had some misconceptions that I was like some rich kid growing up in California. And I grew up like in a trailer with substance abuse parents and like rode the I ground out. That being said, I was still happy. I wouldn't complain about that. There's a lot of blessings in my life. And even with little to nothing in my life, I was happy. And so I learned a lot that do you need runway? I mean, I'm going to get a lot of flack for this because there's going to be folks, well, you, your kids are young. You don't know when you have kids, they're expensive and this happens and this happens and this happens. It's, you know, I mean, you know, for a long time, I lived in a 600 square foot house with like a bunch of family and stuff and it, and it was fine. Right. Like I got nieces and nephews living in very small sheltered quarters and they don't have a new car and they don't have a phone and they don't have these things and they're happy. They go outside and they play in the street and they drink from the garden hose whatever you will adapt and you will survive. Do you need to have a million and a half dollar house somewhere? Maybe not. Right. Maybe it's okay to have a little bit less. You could still make things pretty damn nice, no matter your circumstances. So how much runway do you need? I'm the wrong person to ask for that. Cause I don't think you need any runway. And in a way that is exceptionally liberating. And if we get to the piece of negotiation, the best negotiators are the ones that don't need to say yes. They have fallen in love with no as being the default because they don't need anything from anyone else. They don't need to be subservient to someone. Like in a job offer, as an example, they say it's easier to get a job when you already have a job than when you don't. So when somebody knows you don't have a job, they're assuming that you will need a job to pay for your life. And they're assuming that they're the offer that is on the table for you. And they're assuming that you have no alternatives. And what do you do through the process? You prove them right by being subservient and saying, yes, I want this job. Yes, I want this. Yes, I want that. Yes, I can do this. And yes, I can do that. And then you find yourself saying yes to someone else's dream and not your own. And so you have to kind of fall in love with no as being your default and at least treating each other on an equal level. And from there, you can negotiate with much more confidence. Let's take this, for example, then. Let's run a scenario. Let's say I have a friend called Jennifer. Okay, now Jennifer has been unemployed for four months. Okay, and it's starting to creep into her mindset that if she doesn't grab something soon, she can't pay the bills, she can't contribute to, you know, family expenses, yada, 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 right? Yep. Now, I'm wondering if Jennifer's in a negotiation, how does she override the part of her which wants to take care of the basic needs and wants of her family and say no with confidence 
even though a potential outcome could be her walking away with nothing. So a lot of nuances to that, obviously. And it's tricky to be in that situation. She may not want to say no. She may need to say yes to sometimes stem the bleeding. And I'll, I'll work on this with some clients. Sometimes we can negotiate a better outcome without having to be so aggressive. What's really happened here is that Jennifer's position has been compromised. Her leverage is a little bit weaker than necessary because ultimately she does need something to continue on whatever lifestyle choices that she's had, right? So if I were working with Jennifer, I may advise that she take that role to stem the bleeding, right? But start thinking instead of the next two, three months down the line in her career, start looking at two, three years down the line and start to make smarter decisions so she doesn't find herself in that position again. And that could be better savings, better financial independence practices, investment strategies, those types of things, depending on her appetite for that. But I didn't get a lot of context on how much money she's making here. So if it's on the lesser side, then she may not have a choice. Right. And so we also want to know that if this is an executive going through this, this is more or less a first world problem. Right. Like we could we could deal with a little hardship. We can we can have some tough love here. If we're negotiating for a thirty thousand dollar year job and survival's on the line, we do whatever it is we need to. So different ways that we can take this conversation for Jennifer. But ultimately, what I would do in her situation is recognize that her negotiation starts before the first interview even happens. And what I mean by that is if she let the, let's say, future employer know right away she was out of work, she was looking for four months, she's really trying, like most people wouldn't do that. But if she did, she'd be losing that negotiation right from the get-go, from the very first words out of her mouth. And so the reason is that a negotiation is all about information, timing, and power. And so the more information that she shares about her life circumstances, the more her potential employer can choose to use that against her, right? They may not do it consciously. They're not trying to screw Jennifer necessarily, but they may say, well, Jennifer's out of work. She can take it or leave it, right? And kind of get into an ultimatum situation. And they should have pretty good confidence given her situation. And the more they know about her, oh, Jennifer has late mortgage payments. Oh, Jennifer has to provide for her family. Oh, Jennifer is coming from a position of poverty, whatever that could be, the more confident they could be in saying, take it or leave it right? Because what else is she going to do? She doesn't have any alternatives. Now, again, that doesn't need to be malicious. I'm just using that kind of extreme situation as, as an example of how, what you say can and will be used against you. So it's not, I'm not going to suggest that Jennifer lie about her position. It's just that the timing of which she shares that information is pretty important. She needs to win that job first and then structure which information she shares with that employer later on down the line. Maybe she shares that she was in a tough position six months after she has the job, right? Maybe she shares that, oh man, you guys didn't even know. I was, I was having a hard go of it, right? But now after six months of performance, right? If she gives that information there, they might be impressed with her. So it's the timing of which you share that information that can really be important. And a lot of folks think that the negotiation starts when an offer is on the table or someone's scrambling to find compensation numbers. But really, the first words out of your mouth can mess you up. Hey, Rob, how much money did you make in that last role? Like, they can't say that legally, but they could say, hey, Rob, how much money do you want to make? Say what you just said again. Is it it's actually illegal to ask how much money you made in your last role? In your last role. In many states, it is in the United States. Now, I don't know what it's wow. going to be like with your international listeners. 
there's a lot of pay transparency laws and those things are changing constantly. I don't really stay up on them if I'm being honest, because I never want to answer that question anyway. (laughs) Uh, Even the, how much money do you want to make? Like, how do you know how to answer that? In what way does that serve you? If I asked you, like, if you said like, Rob, you're like, I'm a good guy. I'm a, I'm a professional speaker. I'm all over the place. Like I, I tell great stories. I will, you know, I'm going to supercharge your sales team up a you million dollars a year. I don't know. Maybe it's 10 million a year. I don't know the size of the sales teams you're coaching. Rob, right. But if you said I'm $500 an hour, right. For a million dollar a year impact, you're too cheap. But you say $500 an hour, they might go, wow, you're expensive, right? There's a lot of perception that comes from that. So you sharing a number too soon doesn't help you in any way until you know the value that you're going to provide the company on the other side. So it can be used against you. What if the sometimes you get in this scenario where, <laughs> let's go back to Jennifer, right? So Jennifer says... Jennifer's talking, she's sharing information. It's all beautiful. It's all polite. And then this interviewer says, Jennifer, how much would you like to make in your next role? And then Jennifer says, well, I'm curious to know what is the salary band for a role like this? And they say, well, we haven't really figured that out yet. You know, we're a startup, you know, we're here, we're there, we're figuring it out. But, you know, going back to you, what are you looking for? So like, they're, they're playing this I'm not sure game. So how, how do you how do you play that? What do you do there? No, this is fun because it can be pretty uncomfortable. I actually have some role plays written on my blog for some some back and forth negotiation stuff like this because it does get <laughs> it gets pretty uncomfortable, right? Yeah. And yeah. ultimately, it's you you might say something like, "Look, it's pretty early in the process. I'd like to understand the scope of the role in some more detail, mm-hmm. right?" Whether or not I'll be leading a team of X or Y, I'm using an exec. Let's say Jennifer is an executive in this context, right? And maybe this is a let's say it's a head of sales role, but what you think is that they need a chief revenue officer role. They need to hit marketing and they need to hit some other pieces, but it's not quite scoped out yet. You know, I might say something like, as we start to really flesh out the roles and responsibilities. I'll feel more comfortable answering what that looks like, but I have no hesitation that she'll make a competitive offer. So we should continue moving forward. Right. So it could be something like that. I have no hesitation that you're basically going to spend me over and screw me. Right. Pardon the language. There. I don't know what your audience likes, but if they like you, then that's probably appropriate. Uh, <laughs> but I say, you know, I have no hesitation that we won't come to a good agreement. Right. And so sometimes you have some pushback and then sometimes they go even further and say, look, we can't move forward until we know. And you might say, look, it's the best policy that I'm not I'm not open to talking about compensation until there's a written offer. And I appreciate you respecting that. So there's a couple of psychological tricks here, too. When I say I appreciate you respecting that. First of all, they weren't respecting that, but you've given them a reputation of respect if which they want to withhold. So you've kind of classed them above how they're acting and then they want to be consistent with this label that you've given them of being respectful and those that will make a competitive offer. They want to be a part of that. Otherwise they're kind of scumbags, right? (laughs) They don't want to be respectful. They don't want to do these things. They have to actually go against the label that you've given them. So you can semi force them into a position of respect for yourself by standing up for yourself in the beginning. A lot of nuances to that too. So it'd be interesting to hear if there's any feedback in the comment section or however this works. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know what I think is interesting is the delivery. Actually, the delivery. The delivery was firm, yet it was warm. 
And I think if I'm honest, most people struggle with that showing warmth and firm boundaries simultaneously. Is that something that you've always naturally been good at, or is that something that you've had to finesse over time? Absolutely not good at it in the slightest. Very, very difficult for me to get over the hump with that. I've always been a people pleaser and a pushover to a degree. And it doesn't get you anywhere, unfortunately. My wife actually taught me how to be assertive. Really? (laughs) In what way? Absolutely. Basically, I compare career a lot like dating in a lot of ways. This one kind of took me for a loop. So my wife and I got together for the first time. And she said, look, I just want you to know that I want to be serious with this relationship. We can continue to screw around and I'll go see other guys. Or we can make a commitment because at the end of the day, I'd like to have a family someday. And I don't really want to waste my time with a bunch of jack-offs, right? And she was 20 years old. <laughs> like, what 20-year-old talks like that, first of all? <laughs> and she was just basically like, look, if you want to be an asshole, you could go ahead and be an asshole. I'm not going to try to change you. But what I'm looking for is a real man is basically what she said. And I was so, I was like, I could be a real man. I could do that. Because <laughs> again, I'm a people pleaser too, right? <laughs> so she taught me how to be assertive and direct. But this is what I'm looking for. And I'm, you know, I'm not going to try to change you, but respect that or get out. And I was like, well, I'll respect that. And here we are. And that actually taught me a lot about what to do with my career and with negotiation in particular and helping clients through some of these challenges. It's not what you say, it's how you say it. So that's that warmth piece. That may be something you say from time to time as you tell stories and you you can massage conversation. Stories add warmth, right? That's one of the reasons I'm so attracted to the work that you do is simply by adding warmth of character, you can get away with being more direct too because they've already gone to the conclusion and made the first impression that you're not an asshole trying to take advantage of them. So that's... Mm. Warmth and storytelling can bring people closer. And then when you have to push back, you actually have some flexibility to do so because you've earned that at least relational capital back and forth and say, look, I love the hell out of you, but I'm going to have to push back on this. And you see, you can challenge people more directly and be assertive without being arrogant. And that's a balance. And I guess that is an acquired skill. And it's one of the things I work on with my clients is just role playing back and forth, practicing. Right. I'm like, okay, when you say it like that, you sound like an asshole. Here's why. Oh, when you say it like that, you're too soft. Here's why. Right. And so you get to practice back and forth. And sometimes it's say what you really mean. Like, hey, I think they're totally screwing me. Okay. Now let's tone it back. <laughs> right. And work on the actual way of delivering this while still having that directness and intention that you, that you need to get what you want. Sales kickoff season is coming, people, and I love it, man. I love it because it's such an exciting time as a speaker. But for enablement professionals and revenue leaders, well, it can be kind of stressful, you know, and having delivered storytelling keynotes and workshops for revenue teams like NetSuite, Crunchbase, and AB Tasty, I know it's not just about motivation and inspiration, but also about finding the right speaker who can educate your audience and spark a long lasting shift in behavior. So, hey, if you are thinking about storytelling as a theme for kicking off your new fiscal year, then head on down to www.theraviregiani.com forward slash speaking to check out my speaker reel 
take a look at some of my topics and some customer stories to see if there's a fit. And if there is, then you can scroll down to the bottom and book an alignment call with me directly. All right, let's get back to the show. Speaking of directness, if you had spoken to the 23-year-old version of me versus the 34-year-old version of me talking to you right now, you would have got a very different level of people pleaser is or people pleasingness if that's even a thing and i think when you're early on in the in your career you want to impress you want to land the role you want to show that you're willing to do what it takes whatever it might be now also what can come with that is a reluctance for confrontation and also owning and standing up for your values right so how do you teach somebody who's brand new how to be firm and direct while showing warmth versus an executive yeah so first of all you mentioned something pretty important i want to impress and so we need to get that out of our heads right now it's more important to find alignment than to be impressive Start and stop there for a second. More important to find alignment than be impressive. And so the way to visualize this is, you know, Ralph, you and I were having a negotiation. We're not sitting across from the table. We're not, it's not you versus me. It's we versus the problem, right? The problem that we're trying to solve together is an alignment thing, right? It's not confrontation. It's not how impressive am I? It's me putting my arm around you, buddy, we're hanging out, the problem's in front of us. Hey, maybe the problem's my compensation, right? But we're solving this together because we need alignment for us to move forward in the best possible path. So when you start to think about a conversation about alignment versus being impressive, you start to come across as more authentic. You're more, you could say, you know, I haven't done these things in that manner. Can you tell me more about what you're looking for? As an example, let's say, um, have you led a sales team of 50 to 50 million? Well, actually, I've led a sales team of 48 to 40 million, right? It's like that little nuance. So these things where sometimes that's a turnoff in the job search process, you don't quite hit the bar that they're trying to set. You should still be able to win that job. Like I have never won a job that I'm 100% qualified for, period. Every job I've had has required a, a bachelor's or a master's degree, and I didn't go to college. That's crazy. How does that work, right? You didn't hit the bar, right? But we had alignment in other areas. And so that's what you're looking for. You could say, you know, it says, let's say you're challenging one of the things that I've done in my career. Now, I haven't done it for a company in this industry before, right? Can you tell me a little bit about what you're looking for, what this industry provides, like that specific experience? And then I'll share how my experience either is good for that or bad. You might give them alternate perspectives, on things. So what I learned from tech is this, and it may apply to become more innovative in this healthcare company, right? Because we're thinking outside the box now. And so we're finding alignment on future vision. That was a lot to unpack. So I expect some squinty eyes and some note taking to happen there. Oh, no, that's good, man. The squinty eyes are, I'm deep in thought. I'm deep in thought. I love this. This, uh, this is interesting. Now, you mentioned the words trying to be impressive. How much does likability matter in negotiation? I think likability matters a lot more to everything than you, than you would think right off what the bat. What do you bat. mean? Tell me more. I think that it's more important to be likable than to even know how to do the job in many cases. 
at least to win it, right? You're still going to have to perform, right? I promise you, I have won interviews and I have gotten jobs that I've had no business being in. I was a VP of marketing by 26 years old. Like, why? (laughs) Now, I'm not saying there aren't 26-year-old savants. I'm saying I was not one of them, right? It's just that there were jobs that I talked myself into that I had no business being into based off of negotiation prowess alone and likability and working to be likable, working the person other than the process, which is something through the interview process needs to happen. I work with a lot of executives and, and I know you've popped into some of the OTB groups and Pavilion and stuff before, Ralph. And there'll be senior executives that are, oh, I just can't, can't get past this junior recruiter. Can't get past this junior, you know, like talent scout or whatever. I just can't figure it out. I'm like, they don't understand my language. They don't understand this. It's like, why are you trying to come in, be all macho chief revenue officer, whatever, to a junior recruiter? When I talk to a junior recruiter, I say, man, I'm sure there's a couple boxes you need to tick. How can I best show up for you today? Right. I'm working the person, not that in the process, like I'm not working my skills. I don't need to impress that person. I need another phone call. That's literally all I need. So I need to be likable enough for that person to feel confident to share me to their boss and go like, man, they don't take any of the boxes, but you're going to have a kick out of talking to Ravi. <laughs> right. And you can still get the phone call, even if you don't qualify. And then there are people that are overqualified that can't get the phone call. Because it's conversational mastery. It has nothing to do with your skills in that that particular stage. And winning the job is just a sales job. Like you're selling your skills. You're the product selling to the company, right? And if there are no other products for them to buy, your negotiation goes way up. So if you're the most likable, prettiest, sexiest looking product with the most alignment, you're going to kick ass in that negotiation versus the less polished, less whatever competition that you have out there, even if they are more qualified. How does one in your words, work the person while still being ethical in alignment with your values and heart-centered. Where's like the line there? There's a caveat that you could use a lot of this for evil and not good, right? You can be a manipulative bastard. I try to share this in, in hopes that people use it for good and not evil, but you ride the line by having a ton of empathy for what the other person's looking for trying to understand what it is they need to be successful and then weaving in how you can best support them through that process. Sometimes I call this eliminating friction, right? Like Rav, nobody knows you like you do, right? There's nobody that's listened to every single podcast, read every single thing you've done, attended every little thing that you've ever done, right? Nobody knows you like you do. So you have to guide them along the path of what's going to kind of truncate getting to know you faster. And you do that masterfully through storytelling. You can get a lot, a lot of the ways there. I guess you could argue that storytelling could be used for evil too, because you can hook an entire audience and steer them towards anything that you want, right? So in this context, I was, I would concentrate on adding a lot of thoughtful questions while sprinkling in the values and the direction you want to take the conversation. So as an example, um, talking to a recruiter about they're trying to hire a go-to-market leader, and I could say, I would imagine. You know, Rav, I imagine you're talking to dozen go-to-market leaders. You could be looking for some with, you know, more startup experience, maybe more mid-level, or or maybe a lot of enterprise experience, like myself. See, what I'm doing is I'm rattling off things that you could be looking for, and then I might say something like, "So, why am I on the call today?" Oh, I like the enterprise side. Great. So now you've eliminated yourself from the other competitors on the startup and mid-size, and you could say. 
you know, I'd be happy to talk about some of the enterprise stuff. And this, in this way, we can talk about the pros and cons of enterprise just to see where the other person wants to take the conversation. You might say some people think enterprise go-to-market is really slow. It's you know, full of a lot of process and it's dated and things move slowly. What I found is that you can motivate teams and peoples or whatever direction you want to take the conversation and see what they perk up. So you can eliminate yourself from the other enterprise folks through that storytelling as well. But what you're doing is you're, you're saying there's four different directions I can tell you stories. And I'm looking for the eye squint or the head nods or the vocal inflection changes or whatever it is that somebody's like, that's what I want to talk about. And then you can steer the conversation to make that conversation easier for them. Right. You've, you've kind of rattled off and they also, you come across as more experienced because you're like, Hey, it could be like this. I would, I would shy away from that. And they're laughing and nodding along. Yeah. I want to shy. I just talked to a guy a second ago, could not go. Like he was just going on and on and on about how startup experience of working for, and then working for Google was like the greatest thing ever. Right. But what I want to talk about is this and go, cool. Now my stories are targeted. Right. And so I'm helping them get to their conclusions faster by using a couple tricks, like you could argue that that's manipulative. I wouldn't suggest being deceitful in your stories to steer, right? Like if they're like, I really want a startup person, you're obviously enterprise. I mean, you could, you could say, I can have some startup conversations here, but I might not be a good fit, right? In, in being more authentic. And now you could also have a story prepared for startup and still win that deal. You may not like it if it's not pointing in the direction that you want your career to go. So a couple different ways to take that. Again, I'm kind of dumping quite a bit of knowledge here just, just generally because there are different, different ways to take different careers in different contexts. What if, what if a leader is secretly telling themselves, an executive leader is telling, secretly telling themselves a story that who am I to ask for X? There are so many other people out there in the market who've done more. Who am I to receive X salary? Now, insert whatever number we want for X. Sure. How do they overcome that internal voice and then negotiate a pay rise, which is an equal exchange, energy exchange for both? Yeah. This Sorry, is context. So yeah, Sorry, there's, context. There's two take. parts to this, yeah. I was just going to say, instead of taking a salary with resentment, knowing it doesn't equate to a fair energy exchange. That is the context. Okay. So yeah, lots of different ways that we can take this one. There was a, there was a couple of threads of almost imposter syndrome at the beginning part of that question. Like who am I to yeah. ask for mm -hmm. that? I usually break that down with clients pretty quick. I've known chief technology officers that make $5 million a year that have never done coding in their life. Like they don't even know how to be an engineer, but they're great leaders make 5 million a year. Like there are folks that are leading sales teams that can't close and they make 500, 600, $700,000 a year, right? So you don't get what you're worth. You get what you negotiate. So we, we just kind of get through that right away. The other piece is understanding the value that's being brought to the table. And if you're not happy with the value that's presented to you in some cases, and there's, there's, again, there's a lot of ways to take this. In some cases, you could tear up the contract to present an alternative, right? I've done this with some clients in Pavilion before. They were offered W-2s. We tore it up and got a 1099 and negotiated instead of 50 hours a week, 30, and actually increased the compensation just by presenting it in different terms. 
there may be more questions that to, to be asked here. So we can start to whittle away at that value exchange being more apparent, right? So I'm going to produce $10 million here. And at the end of the day, I'm going to make 200,000, right? So am I hearing you correctly? That's probably an assholeish way to bring it up. This is when negotiations are going a little south, right? You might not bring it up like that, right? But there are ways, again, we're dripping information and getting someone to come to the conclusion that that's not a fair value exchange, right? So you might say, look, if I'm going to deliver 10 million, I'd like to see what, 10%? Does that sound reasonable? And so there are questions. And, and if you get into some Chris Voss negotiation training, he'll do some no-oriented questions. He'll say, is it unreasonable for me to ask for 10% when the competitive nature of, of sales is 20 to 30? Is it unreasonable for me to ask for 10? I'm going to deliver 10 million. So now we're seeing like, it's not unreasonable. Oh, a million dollars. Now you're, I don't know what your initial offer was, but you may be looking at different ways to dissect the data to prove the value. Probably need more context to be really laser focused on that answer but some different ways to think about it. So your prescription for that individual is do enough discovery with that other human being to understand the actual data to figure out the impact you're going to have and then quantify the ROI internally so you reduce that imposter syndrome. You're like, hold on, I'm bringing 10 mil here. So for me asking for half a million here, well, actually, that does seem justified. And then actually having a conversation and building a case around that. Am I hearing that correctly? Yeah. So if we go back to the the three principles, information, timing, and power. So mm -hmm. discovery is collecting information, right? Yeah. You may also have information based off of what you've done in your career. We call that experience, right? So you know, generally speaking, I will produce X amount, but we don't know this particular opportunity yet. So we're discovering, we're collecting information. Now, the pace at which we drip that information back and represent that data, that's the timing, right? So I don't want to be in a position where they're offering me 200 when I'm going to bring 10 million and that's at the offer stage. We've screwed up way, way earlier than that. We should be having, dripping this information in ways to bolster that offer higher and higher, way, way earlier in the conversation. We almost want to be at a point where the employer is saying, I don't know if I can afford you. I don't know if I can afford you. I don't know if I can afford you, right? Although sometimes that's a cheap trick to try to get your number down. So we got to be careful with that. But ultimately, they should know, like, hey, as I produce X goals, this is going to happen. We're selling them the vacation in this context through our interview process while also collecting more information. So we're saying six months from now, when we hit our $4 million goal, right, this will be the reality. So we're starting to put the hiring manager in a position of the vacation state somewhere in the future, that's going to make it easier for us to negotiate the present because they've already sold themselves on the dream way down the line and can see it happening. And then, then they see 4 million is definitely going to happen. Why can we're not going to offer them 200,000 for this or 400,000 or whatever it could be. So there's a lot, again, a lot of nuances, a lot of negotiation is very psychological and understanding the pacing. And that's why if you don't know what to say, you shouldn't say anything. Like you should be really sure of the information that you're dripping is going to point you down a direction in the path, especially for executives. You're, you're not 
negotiating into a job, you are creating a job. So you are creating the circumstances. That's where you're going to find the best life alignment for yourself too, and not just financial alignment. All right, another squinty-eyed moment, which by the way, from a charismatic perspective, the squinty eyes shows a level of attention to detail and listening. So this is for your listeners, by the way. Robbie's squinting his eyes quite a bit. Squinting your eyes is one of the most attractive things that you can do to another human because they see that you are listening and everyone wants to be listened to. It shows that. So it spikes your attractiveness level to the other person. And it also spikes your likability piece. So keep that in mind for your listeners there. Just keep watching Rav. <laughs> you know what I found, brother? For example, if somebody is squinting at me, leaning in, but has a crumpled forehead and it's confusion, I find it's different to a head tilt with a squint and a smile. Do you feel that difference? Like one is like, what the hell are you on? I the love them like, both. Ooh. No, I <laughs> really, okay. I like both, especially in a group context mm-hmm. because you can fearlessly acknowledge that physical cue and call it out. So you can say, hey, I noticed Tom over here. He did the the head tilt to the side and the laughing while, you know, Kathy over here looked like she was pissed off at me. And I know that's not the case because we had this conversation before, whatever. It's like you can you can kind of play with it, right? Mm-hmm. And even this is something about not being a pushover and subservient or people pleaser. But when an interview is not going your way, don't pretend it's not going your way. Just talk about it not going your way. Just bring it out. Like, Rav. I feel like I haven't won you over and maybe there's a different path we could have taken this conversation. Can you tell me why, you know, that didn't resonate with you? Like, that's a good question. And they're like, yeah, I think you're totally full of shit. You're an asshole, whatever. Like then we're having a real conversation again and you can go back to understanding how to take better control of that conversation. Again, cause we're, Brother, we're aligned. I love your focus on alignment because I know how big you are on building a life you love versus one that you have to tear down because of ego. So I know how big you are on that, which is which I think is fantastic. And I think what's really incredible, ladies and gents, of asking that simple question that Jacob just answered is it tells a great story about you, right? Think about the story that it tells people about you. Okay, this person can actually pick up on body language. This human being is present. This human being is in the moment. This human being wants to find the truth in this conversation, which don't you feel a lot of the time, sometimes it can be easier to, I suppose, lean away and just pretend it didn't happen, right? Which can, which can, I don't know. I think it dictates sometimes a lack of confidence or not dictates it. It portrays a lack of confidence. It just shows that you will be led to wherever it is you're going to be led. A lot of people are led through their careers. They have a very Mm -hmm. linear path where they never actually made a choice it was somebody saying, I'm going to take you with me. I'm going to take you with me. You're going to come here. Like it's all opportunistic. And it's great that people want to pull you down that opportunity, but sometimes you don't stop to question if that's where you actually want it to be. So you can be led to different paths. And then you should also not be surprised if you're somewhere totally different in your life than you would hope to be because you never took a stand on what was important to you or you never learned the skills on how to tell other people what was important to you. Going back to my wife saying, this is important to me. I want to have a partner who's going to be there for me and not be a jack off. 
like as simple as that. And I was like, well, I respect that. I used it for good and not evil in this case. We'll, we'll see that one play through, right? But the body language, the cues and being able to call that out with confidence and you know, we could get into executive presence and taking up body space and we can talk about what that applies for our confidence. Ultimately, it's uh, this is a trait I inherited by learning how to survive, right? And so when you asked about run rate, right, when you needed to survive, like I knew how to pick up on body language because I knew like, oh, this is a situation where I'm safe or this is a situation where I could be physically in harm. Like I need to negotiate my way out of physical harm to survive. Like this comes back to my childhood. So learning how to do like sales meetings, meeting with CEOs, that's easy. No one's going to hit you, right? No one's going to hurt you. You can take control of that conversation, have a very strong outcome just by picking up on cues and understanding how to ask the right questions. So very powerful stuff that kind of, and I'm just going back to that, the things that people don't know about you question, just to try to be real. Well, dude, one thing I want to acknowledge you for is your high levels of self-awareness, your desire and intentionality around showing up unapologetically self-expressed and articulating your ideas in such a way, which is full of confidence, man. I think that is rare. I think truly that that is rare. And I know that you're somebody who probably knows, right, their North Star and where they are traveling towards. So let's, let's say you and I don't talk for three years. And by the way, speaking of talking, and not talking. I told Jacob before this interview, I was like, yeah, man. So we're thinking about this being uh, 25 minutes long. And we're like, <laughs> we're like 50 minutes now. I'm like, I can't cut it. I can't cut it, man. Anyway, I digress. So you and I don't talk for three years, right? You and I don't talk. And suddenly we're on podcast number two, Jacob Warwick on the influential communicator. And I say, dude, what happened, man? What happened in the past three years? What are three things that happened to you, man? If it went exactly the way you would have liked it to. Yeah. So I'm in a weird spot. I'll be honest with you. I don't want more in my life, which is mm, I love it. awkward for folks. The way that Megan and I are running Core Connect, like our, our group of executives getting together, we're not trying to grow it a lot. We're being very selective and taking our time and we're not up and to the right trying to get a bunch of money. I'm not trying to close more clients. I have a perfect setup and stream of clients. I take two days off a week. I spend a lot of time with my son. So in three, man, three years, may have another child. My wife and I are living almost like half hybrid remote. So like we live in Montana and then we'll be probably hopping to Airbnbs or even just hotels around the world, just hanging out because everything's been fully remote for us for almost 10 years now. And you know, I like running my business from my phone and less in front of a computer. So I like that I have 3,500 executives in my cell phone that I just text. Like, you know, I'm not texting 3,500 people. Don't get too crazy, carried away there. I'm just saying I have a habit of getting people's cell phone numbers and being on demand through text. And that just keeps my whole business running. So I don't need to be doom scrolling LinkedIn or I don't need to do a ton of podcasts. I do enjoy podcasts here and there. And I enjoy my writing once a week. So I guess three years from now, I hope to be doing about the same. I don't have weird, ambitious 
corporate capitalist monster dreams or anything, you'll know I failed if I'm working for someone else. That's what you'll know. So that's it. That's all I got for you. That's three years, three years, three years down the line. More of the same. Doing fine. Making good money. Brother, in a world of in a world of people getting obsessed with more consumerism and scale, it is so refreshing to connect with somebody who is rooted in the now and not more from a necessarily a financial perspective that is one angle of it but it's it's more goodness more joy you mentioned another baby you mentioned hopping around different airbnbs it's pretty cool man and i know you're somebody who cares about intimacy because i've presented to your community over at core connect and it's a great group of people and by the way megan i don't know where you found megan she's dope man (laughs) she's the best absolutely she's so good she's so she is incredible man i mean talk about somebody who you want flying the flag for your brand voice of corkinet she is incredible dude how did you meet her by the way i'm curious is she an ex-colleague or something or yeah so we've worked together for 10 years at four different companies no way i got my first entrepreneurial gateway drug by being a copywriter like it goes right for entrepreneur and stuff as you mentioned earlier yeah and Megan's company, their CEOs called me and hired me to be a ghostwriter and a copywriter for their brand. And Megan was my boss. Oh. And she was the community manager at Clear Voice. And she's the only reason I'm probably still an entrepreneur because I was trying to figure out how to navigate you know, the early entrepreneur problems. How do I send an invoice? How do I make sure my quality is good enough because I need this money now that I've accumulated by having this side gig? And with her managerial support and authentic guidance through this early part of my career, like she gave me a lot of the courage to be an entrepreneur. Like and just I quit my job and just try to make it work with freelance work for a time. Didn't work out that time, if I'm being honest. I failed several, several times in the interim there. But Megan and I have always kind of stayed together. And then we brought back my wife is more risk adverse than I am. She is like, babe, if we have absolutely nothing, everything's good. We have faith. It's always going to work out. So, you know, if people think that I'm, is risk adverse the right word? Like I, I'm, I'm open to taking a lot of risk is no risk. risk adverse loving. Is risk loving. Okay. So yeah, let me make sure yeah. I get that right. She is more risk loving than I am. More, oh, okay. Like a like hundred yeah. times more. She's like, oh, yeah. She's like, don't ever work for someone else. You always, you do better when you work for yourself. Just don't even bother. Like, you know, you'll get all sad or something. So, like, she's super chill with that. So, like that, that I got power, power combo in my corner for sure. My man, you really do. You really do. That's one thing I noticed about Megan, and from what I've suppose heard from your wife or heard about your wife in this episode, it sounds like she's a keeper, bro. Don't mess it up, man. Don't mess it up, Jacob, all right? Yeah, Don't mess it up. But listen, dude, <laughs> this show is called The Influential Communicator, as you know, man. So final question for you is, is who do you look up to as an influential communicator in this present moment and why? Influential communicator. Honestly, I don't watch. I, I, don't, I don't watch anyone on YouTube. I do enjoy your presence and the way you show up. I look back to some of the Stoics. And how they oh, yeah. communicate. I'm trying to do more studying on philosophy, business books that are written 40, 50 years ago, typically. I'm a Christian, so Jesus is important. And that communication style, at least, you know, a lot of people can read into that what they will, but um, the good parts of the Bible will keep you pointed in the right direction. 
So that's important to me. And just trying to be, you know, I, I don't even know if I'm trying to be better each day. I'm just trying to maybe 1% better, like that atomic habits thing, right? I'm not trying to conquer the world or do anything. I'm kind of just want to make an impact and be influential along the way, I reckon. Oh, a mission. Mission is good. I think that if you can influence those that make a big impact in the world, you can make the world a better place. And what I mean by that is I was trying to find purpose in consulting some of the richest and most successful people in the world, other than like the glass half empty way is helping the rich people get richer. But if I could help those that have big teams be happier, then ideally they'll treat their teams a little better. Those people, when they drive home and they get road rage, they might smile instead of honk, right? And they go home to their families and they're in a better mood. And so it cascades through their organizations. So if you can impact executives and cascade through their organizations and cascade back to their families because they're all happier, ideally that would be my small way of making the world a better place. So helping people negotiate fulfillment and happiness is more important than the money piece. Although the money piece is pretty fun too in the meantime. Oh, dude, clearly negotiation is your vehicle, man, because it's it's definitely a superpower of yours, man. It's one of many things that you're good at. So ladies and gents, here's what I'd like you to do. If you've enjoyed today's episode, what I'd like you to do is pause, take a screenshot, head on down to LinkedIn and tag myself and Jacob and let us know what is the one nugget that you took away from today's episode and why. Let us know, okay? Jacob and I will get back to you. If not, then Jacob's never coming back on the show again, all right? If Jacob doesn't true. respond to you, that's that's what it's very true. It's a high likelihood, right? But anyway, ladies and gents, I'll see you next week, same time, same place for another episode of The Influential Communicator. Peace. I have a question for you, my friend. And that question is, is what would it take to have you subscribe to the Influential Communicator podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice. Because I tell you what, my friend, my big mission is to help B2B sellers and all listeners of this show sell more by becoming influential storytellers and communicators without, without suppressing their personality and disowning their value. So, hey, The more the word gets out about this podcast, the more people we can gather on this mission. So if you could support me, then hey, that would be dope. And if not, that's dope too. Either way, I got love for you. All right, I'll see you on the other side.